Daniel 4. Uh, it's a long section, so uh, some of it we're going to have to summarize, but, but it's a story about pride. And pride is a very tricky thing, is it not? Pride is one of those things, and it's one of those sins that is hugely pervasive in our hearts, and yet it's often hard to identify. So it's hard to identify, thus it's hard to kill. In other words, the same pride that could be pervasive in my heart that would, that would cause me to want to control big things or move you toward lust is the same pride that moves you to want to control small things and being anxious. It's a core sin that affects so many other things. It's a sin that doesn't go quietly into the night. It's a sin that when you think you cut off one of its tentacles that reaches out, four more are born out in other areas of your life. And the core of pride is unbelief. It's a turning away from God in Christ to find satisfaction in other things, in ourself, in our self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. In fact, John Piper describes pride this way. See if you resonate with this. Pride is a turning away from God specifically to take satisfaction in self. So pride is one specific form of unbelief, and its antidote is the awakening and strengthening of faith in future grace. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society about as often as we find God applauded in our society. Jeremiah, the major prophet, identified major areas of pride in our lives. These are things that every person at some level, in some way, shape, or form, struggles with. In other words, there's no one here today that says, really, pride's not my jam. Pride's not my thing. I got other sins that I'm worried about, but pride's not. Pride is such a central focus of our heart, it pervades everything. Here's what Jeremiah said. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, what we know. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, who I am. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, what I have. But let him who boasts, boast in this. And here's the antidote, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We tend to, pride tends to cause us to glory in our mind, our strength, our material possessions. When God says he does not share his glory with another. Our culture pushes uh, this idea of self-esteem and, and that you need to applaud and laud your own self. We see that right now. The Olympics are starting, right? They did start. There was no one there in the stands, but, but they're starting. But the Olympics are one of those things that, that it is the uh, upholding, the applauding of human achievement. Now, it doesn't have to be. You can be Eric Little, and you could say, God's made me for a purpose, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? You can glorify God in athletics and, and in the Olympics, but most times when we watch the Olympics, it is not giving glory to God. It's what? Praising self. It's focusing on self. We're plagued with self, from boasting to self-pity to anxiety and to lust, all of which glory in the belief that we are the most valuable, important entity, not God. 
Uh, how many of you, uh, the last couple years, uh, last couple months, 18 months, uh, you've had to do Zoom meetings? About everybody here? here? Do you know what I noticed about Zoom meetings? Not only that I loathe them, uh, that is one thing that I've learned, but, but here's what I learned about Zoom meetings, about my own heart, is who did I look at in all those Zoom meetings? I'll just tell you, it wasn't you. Uh, as I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm looking at that little square in the corner, and who's there in the corner? It's me. And I'm going, now, how am I looking? And, and uh, I've been preaching through the book of Daniel, and Daniel 7 talks about a little horn, and God gave me this big old cyst and knob on my head. So every time I'm on Zoom, I'm saying, how's the knob looking? And, and, but, but I'm like, as I'm on Zoom, who am I focused on? It's not my audience, it's myself. Very quickly, very easily, I get sucked into viewing myself. We also, pride comes out, we have a hard time asking for help. We've experienced this. Uh, pride manifests, manifests itself not just in early life, but in, in later life. As we've tried to walk people through retirement and even, even to the last phases of death. And it's very difficult, right, in the end, to give up some of the freedoms that you've enjoyed your entire life. To give up your keys and your independence because we like those things, because we like to be in control. The root sin of pride is the source of why we look to ourselves first and God last. And we remember that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now listen, that's what James 4, 6 says. It does not say that God is neutral toward the proud. He doesn't say he's saddened by the proud. He's not disapproving of the proud. He is in opposition toward the proud. Against the proud. Not a neutral word. But he gives grace to the humble, those who humble themselves, or those who will, will humble by, be humbled by the mighty hand of God. So today, we're going to take a look at a character in Daniel chapter 4. I found that one of my favorite characters, actually, in the book of Daniel. And it is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you remember back... From some of your Sunday school stories about Daniel, you'll understand and remember, uh, in your mind, you'll probably have Daniel in the lion's den, although that happened later in his life. You'll remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But but really, the focus from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 5, or here at the end of chapter 4, is King Nebuchadnezzar. He was, in no uncertain terms, the most prideful man in the entire world. The most prideful man. I mean, we, we come to some limits of that today, but, but he had every reason to be. He was probably one of the most dominant military figures this world has ever known. He was a great builder and architect. He was a great leader. I mean, the nation of Babylon that he controlled was, was the pinnacle of strength in all the world. If there was ever a person that could have been proud of what they had done, it's Nebuchadnezzar. But also what we see here by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4 is the culmination of God working on a man's heart. We see God relentlessly moving into a prideful man through his servant Daniel to bring Nebuchadnezzar to himself. And ultimately Daniel 4 is the testimony of a man who was humbled in his pride who repented of his sin and was restored in a relationship with the God who rules all things, who rules all people for all time. 
And if you feel like, oh, I can't really relate to Nebuchadnezzar because I've never built great things or been a military leader of those things, here's what Dale Davis said about Nebuchadnezzar. For we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzar clones. As we look at Daniel 4, resonate with this character, this king. We're all clones wanting to call our own shots. I'm not giving away my shot. Wanting to call our own shots to direct our own show, puny as it is, and seldom, except in rare moments of sanity, stopping to consider how foolish our passion for self-deification really is. So we'll start here in the first three verses of Daniel 4. A testimony of God's rule. Let's read this together. We'll draw some observations. We're not going to read all of Daniel 4, but we'll read some and we'll summarize others. So start with me in Daniel 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Man, that sounds like a great testimony. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That sounds more like Mark Severance than a prideful king. This is, this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar in his testimony of what God has done. And, and starting in verse 4, we're going to see where he started and then where God took him. But I want to draw a couple of, uh, just, just show you a couple of things here, a couple of observations. First, this is the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan. This is a pagan king who wrote this chapter. Most likely it was edited by Daniel, but this is an autobiography, a, a, uh, a, biography, a biographical look at Nebuchadnezzar's life. Notice how it's framed. It begins and ends. You'll notice in verse 3 and then skipping down to verse 34, he talks in the first person. In the middle, he's going to tell his story, much like Holly will today, but here is a personal testimony of God's faithfulness in his life. How, listen, and here is the, here is the, the uh, capturing moment. It's, he's moving from pride to praise. How did a man move from pride to praise? And third, this takes place between 25 to 30 years after the fiery furnace of chapter 3. You'll remember the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That happened uh, 30 years before. So right now in Daniel 4, Daniel is close to his 50s, and Nebuchadnezzar is in his 60s or 70s. We know that because we can time that out because... Daniel 4.4 said there was ease from war and everything was prospering. This was a prosperous time in the kingdom. Now, here's here's what I love. Here's what God has done in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And this is often how he works in our life. Not all at once, but you can start looking back. How many of you have have done this? You look back at your life and you see the key moments and the key people that God has used to draw you to himself. Can you look back on your own life and see that? See, in chapter 2, we, if we had time to study, you look back and we see that God revealed himself in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, about the kingdoms of the nations to come. I don't know if you'll remember that story, but he had this dream, and he said, uh, he told his wise men, they're supposed to tell him his dream and interpret his dream, and only Daniel could do it. And it was this monstrosity of gold and silver and bronze. And, and there's a verse in Daniel 2.47 that this was Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after that. He said, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this to me. Early on, it seemed like we got him. He's there. He gets who God is, and he's starting to humble himself. And then, you know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He reverted back to his old way. Then we get to chapter 3, and, and we see after the fiery furnace. And, and you see in chapter 3 the contorted face of Nebuchadnezzar that these three Jewish young men had the audacity to stand up to him and not bow down when they were called to bow down. So he, in a rage, threw him into the fiery furnace. And when they were saved from there by God, and they didn't even get any smoke on them, their hair wasn't even burned, he said this in chapter 3, verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and has set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. You go, he's got it now, but after 25 years, he still hadn't turned. By the way, have you ever shared the gospel with somebody with a family member and you think they're so close They're so close to getting it, and yet they're so far away in actually expressing it and and having faith and trust in Jesus. Now in chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 17. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar have to see God revealing himself, that God is a rescuer, but now he's going to have to see him as a ruler. 4.17, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Notice the timing of all this. God continued to work. He continued to work on Nebuchadnezzar's life through the decades. What, one thing I just want to impress on you is never give up on any of your loved ones or those you've been praying for or those you've been sharing with in the gospel. Never give up. And, and here, you, you don't see Nebuchadnezzar turn to the end of his life, and you can say, what a waste of life. And yet, if God has called those he's called, he will justify. And so we don't give up on people. We don't stop praying for people. And Daniel was relentless in his witness to this pagan king, and we'll see that here in chapter 4. So now here we see in chapter 4, verse 1, for, one through 3, what we read. Now in his testimony is this pleasure to proclaim. Notice, notice this change that has happened in his life. He started his testimony by addressing the whole kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, is Nebuchadnezzar in no fear, no trepidation. He wants to address all the nation. And who did he control as far as the nations? All people everywhere. He wanted to let everyone know what had happened to him and what was revealed to him. His kingdom encompassed the whole world, so it was appropriate for him to talk to all nations and all people. He had the opportunity to do that in mass. We have the opportunity to do that individually. It says in verse 2 that it pleased him to display the signs and wonders that God had revealed. And instead here of, of pointing to his vast kingdom, he pointed to the reader or the listener to the greatness of God and his rule. 
This is something we should stop and ponder. The prideful monarch who was used to being himself or giving himself glory and adulation now wanted everyone and anyone to know about God that he was made known to that what was made known to him and who actually ruled over all things. There was no fear, no embarrassment, no hesitation, and no duty. This was pure joy. This is the most prideful man in the world who says, forget all of that. Now I just want to tell people about the magnificence of the God that I've come to know. By the way, folks, that's what we do today. What I love about Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is, again, he didn't do it. He didn't hedge it. He didn't didn't stop it. He didn't try to, to shortcut it. And I wonder for us... Right? There is a point in time when we talk to people about the greatness of God and the glory of Jesus Christ that we have to be willing, I'm learning this about leadership, is sometimes you have to be willing to risk being unliked. You have to risk that, that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound weird. It's going to be dissonant. I was driving last night. Uh, we had to get towed over the grapevine. Uh, that was a fun experience for another sermon, but... Uh, I sat there with, with two other people, and, uh, and I started in on, uh, they had some colorful language and stories, and I started in on who I was as a pastor, which always changes the conversation, uh, not for the better, they get real quiet. Uh, but I realized in trying to share about, about God and Christ with them, I was going to have to risk that awkward, awkward silence and that awkwardness that they're going, okay, who is this guy, and now I'm trapped for the next hour and a half with some guy who's going to tell us about Jesus. We have to risk, and Nebuchadnezzar got to this point where he's saying, instead of glorifying myself, I just want to tell all people everywhere about who God is. Well, let's get into the story, and we're going we're gonna to try to capture and encapsulate a lot of verses uh, and just try to tell this story, starting in verse 4. But in, starting in verse 4, we see how the mighty were built up, the mighty were built up. Here, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. He had a dream in chapter 2 that he wanted people to translate or to tell him what the dream was, then interpret it. Here, he told everyone the dream, but he wanted them to tell him what it meant. A few things to note in this section. First is, starting in verse 4, the king knew who Daniel was. He, he, you could tell that he has had a relationship over the last decades with this man, Daniel. And when Daniel comes on the scene, when he was afraid, every time Nebuchadnezzar had a dream or a vision, he was afraid of it. And so there was a comfort when he saw Daniel come there. Second, notice, look at verse 9. Now, let's, let's read a couple of these verses. Start in verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. Again, this is now looking back at what happened to him. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and they might make known to me the interpretation, not just what the dream was, but the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. And at last Daniel came to me, he who was named Belteshazzar, 
differentiating him from any other Daniel, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now that sounds like it's plural, but I believe that's a singular God there in the, in a right translation. He's recognizing there is a God. And I told to him the dream saying, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods, the holy God is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar has already this foundational sense. He knows who Daniel is. He knows who Daniel's God is. He has great comfort that Daniel came into, and when he was in a pinch, he comes back to his friend. And this is, this is now Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he received. Look at verse uh, 10. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these, and I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, And its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The dream was simple. The dream was very simple, although Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what the dream was about. We now look, because we've read ahead, what the dream was, and who was the tree representing was him. He had this vast kingdom that sprawled over everything that, that not only was it dominant, but it was actually beneficial to all people that, that people got to enjoy being under the cover of this, this great kingdom of Babylon. But then he was visited by a watcher, a, a, a messenger from God, a holy one, an angel from God. And look what happened in the vision. It's very simple. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud said, and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under and its birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Stop there, time out. Here was, here was what happened to this beautiful edifice of a tree, this, this bountiful thing that, that served the nations. The angelic being, all of a sudden, this very serene dream became a ghoulish nightmare. All of a sudden, it went from this, this serene picture to something out of Tim Burton's imagination. It goes bad. It's like nightmare before Christmas. And all of a sudden, the angel says this to the tree, chop it off, lop it off, strip it down, and scatter. Chop it, lop it, strip it, scatter it. This was done violently, quickly, and completely. Not even just how winds... Do you guys get winds out here, by the way? Anybody get wind? Like, Simi Valley got built on a wind tunnel. I mean, there is like... We've had winds for six months, but you guys get winds here. And, and you've had trees that get blown down, right? And that, that happened here. Knock the sign down. So you get winds, and that's what was happening. But, but this wasn't just over time. This was like immediate... But here's what we see is the tree gets knocked down and all that's left is a stump. And in that stump, which is fascinating, he builds a fence around it, a bronze and metal fence around this stump. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar was stumped. He didn't know what it was. He didn't. I just thought of that, by the way. That's not even in my notes. Dad jokes <laughs> rule. 
And notice here, look at the second part of verse 15. That's for my kids, by the way. They love dad jokes. Plus, dad jokes plus pastor jokes, worst combination ever. Okay, here we go. Second half of verse 15, let him, let him, notice here, in his dream, as he's explaining it, he goes from an inanimate object to a personal pronoun. Here's what's happening. Let him be wet, not the tree, let him be wet with dew of the heaven. Let his portion be the beast of, uh, with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the messengers, the angelic hosts, the decision by the word of the Holy One to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliness of men. Look, we know, we get it. You guys get the, the interpretation already. Very simple. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who prided himself and gloried in himself and his accomplishments, and God says, I'm going to smack you down, and I'm going to bring you low. I'm going to chop it. I'm going to strip it. I'm going to scatter it. I'm going to lay you low. And what we're going to see here is this is absolutely an unadulterated version of God's grace in his life. This is God's grace in his life. So now let's look at the interpretation. Here's what I want to show you about the interpretation. You already know it. You can feel it. You can see it. You can see where this is going. But look at verse 19. I love this. Here's Daniel coming in. And in chapter 2, Daniel took all night to pray about the interpretation because he didn't have the interpretation. I believe here he had the interpretation right away. You already see it. You're like, I can interpret this. This is child's play. But Daniel didn't need to pray to figure out the interpretation. He knew it. But look at Look at how he was hesitant to speak the interpretation to the king. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for its enemies. I love this. If anybody had reason to hate Nebuchadnezzar, wouldn't it be Daniel? Daniel, who, how many uh, in this room are 12 or 13 years old? 12 or 13 years old? Amen, amen. Okay? 12 and 13 years old, do you know that's about how old Daniel was when he was forced to leave his home? never to return, never to see his family again, never to see his friends again, and he was shipped off to some country he had never seen and never been to, never heard of, and and he would never come back. He was that old. Daniel, who uh, was treated unfairly at different points of time, who he was stripped of freedom, who lived under sometimes this this level of of domination of of this king who would have been tyrannical. If there was ever a time when Daniel would have said, yeah, baby, God's coming after you, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to strip you down and knock you down, and it's your time, your comeuppance, I don't know what those are, it's time for you to, to, to get raised down to the ground. But here's what I love about what Daniel did, because Daniel knew his role in Nebuchadnezzar's life. 
he continually came back and, and was compassionate to this foreign, tyrannical ruler. And Daniel was slow in speaking this, this very harsh judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, oh king, I wish this was for your enemies, not you. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was so great? By no means. Folks, listen, that's a very good principle to remember for us. I don't know what your political leanings are, I can only guess. I don't know how you view what's going on in our government right now, but I can only guess. But sometimes I get this impression that even Christians are willing to say harsh, hurtful things about those who God has placed in our governing uh, uh, positions, and I think sometimes, maybe in our heart, if something was done foolishly by our president, or he misspeaks, or stumbles out of a plane, and those kind of things, we go, ha, 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 yeah, right? And not having compassion that God would somehow turn the governing officials and rulers of our land, turn their heart for him. Daniel was compassionate toward a king who was tyrannical, who didn't deserve it. And look at what the message that Daniel had to give him. Look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. Now, look at verse 22. Here's the hard thing that Daniel had to tell him. Nebuchadnezzar replays the dream to him in verse, uh, chapter 4, 22. It is you, it is you, O king, who, are, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 24. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord and King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be in the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And for seven periods of time, and we believe that is seven years, seven years you're going to face this shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Not an easy message, but again, a message of grace. And here's, here's what we know about what happened in, in, God's, uh, in God's interpretation or God's dream that he gave him, is what was that, what was that gate around the stump He was going to chop down Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to make him flee for seven years. The greatest man of all time, of that time, was going to be forced for seven years to live outside like an animal. He was, uh, lycanthropy is is a psychological condition where people think they're an animal. Sometimes a wolf, sometimes a a cow. Literally, they'll go out in the field and they'll start to eat grass. It's something that we've seen actually in modern day. He He would have to go outside and he'd become a crazy person. His hair would become uh, like talons or, or like feathers, his, his fingernails like talons. He would, he would have to be a, a crazy man for seven years, but God would literally protect his kingdom for those seven years. I believe that fence around the stump was because Nebuchadnezzar had, some, had built up some, uh, some uh, loyalty within there, but also that God had placed his man Daniel in such a high position that Daniel protected the king after seven years. And here is what the counsel was. Here is what the counsel was by Daniel. He says, look at verse 27. 
He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What was the answer to the king's pride? What was the answer to the interpretation of this very harsh dream? It's the same answer to all who struggle with pride today. Break it off by turning from. Break it off, turn from your prideful ways, and turn toward righteousness. Break off what you've been, the direction you've been going and the pride of your own heart and turn from that and toward, turn toward the righteousness of God. Now, that's, that's for Nebuchadnezzar. For us today, we say, turn from our sin and turn toward the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that only he can give us, the righteousness that we can't earn for ourselves, that we repent of our sin and trust in his finished work and his imputed righteousness to us so that we could live righteously. The message for us today is repent of our sin. Turn from them to God in Christ. Serve him obediently and operate in the righteousness he gives us. The solution to all pride is belief. A turning by faith to the God who is the source of all goodness, all joy, all holiness, all righteousness and gentleness. Turn to God in humility and see him in greatness and glory, turning from the worship of self to the worship of him. That's the solution. Now, look at verse 27. The prophecy was realized, and God's patience was exhausted. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, listen, is that not gracious? God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. Twelve months after he was told this was exactly what's going to happen, twelve months after God says, I gave you another dream, everything I've told you that was going to come to pass has come to pass, I'm giving you twelve months. Oftentimes people say, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Listen, time is not our friend. Time doesn't heal. Time alone doesn't heal. Time alone doesn't change. Time is effective when it's matched with truth. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And look what he says. Look at verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of what? My majesty. He was walking on... On, on his balcony as he's looking over his kingdom. And listen, this guy was immense in his building. He built something called the Hanging Gardens. He built the Hanging Gardens because he had married a woman who, uh, she, where she was from, had some mountains, that, and on those mountains had these uh, tropical plants and, and flowers. They were in a very low place, and so what did he do? He built a mountain, and on there he put this thing called the Hanging Gardens, which had tropical plants and flowers. It actually had the first air conditioning in there to make that happen. That's what he did for his wife. I bought my wife's stuff from Hobby Lobby. Like, that's, that's the extent. I'm like, I think that's nice. I, he, he did that for his wife. But, but he, and the Hanging Gardens were one of the wonders of the world. He looked... He looked at what he had done and built this great kingdom, and all he did was start to bang his chest and say, look at my majesty. 
Don't we do that? I don't know if we do that the same way. I don't think I can point to a lot of things that I've built. I don't think we can point to a lot of things that are great in our life, but sometimes we do that by comparison. Isn't that what we do sometimes? My greatness is compared to yours, and sometimes I like to compare myself to other people who've done less than me. We just had a family reunion yesterday, and that's what family reunions are. You're like, yeah, like I put on some weight, but not as much as this guy, right? <laughs> like I, I, I look at my life, I'm like, what have I accomplished? Well, it's more than him. It's more than my brother. Yay. Like we, we start to pride in these things. We start to boast in ourselves. And that's exactly where Nebuchadnezzar got back down the road. Even though he had been shown the greatness of God, he still held on to his own pride. And it's so interesting, this is not the first time in Scripture. Remember Acts 12? You remember what Herod said in Acts 12? When the, he, he was speaking to the people, and the people said, that's not a voice of a man, it's a voice of God. And what did God do? And immediately he killed him, and worms came out of him. I got worms. But here's the grace of God, because right as he said this, look at verse 31. While the words were still in his mouth, in the mouth of the king, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And exactly what God had predicted happened. Exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar for seven years lived like a crazy man, like an animal. Daniel helped maintain the kingdom, but he had to live this way. Folks, listen, I don't care how much we have, I don't care how much you have saved. I don't care how much your portfolio is. I don't care what health you have. We know that God can take it away that quickly. Is that true? He can take it away that quickly. And don't we like the security of all those things? Don't we sometimes get pulled into this, lulled into this thought that like, ah, everything is good. Have you ever thought that? Like everything is good. Like our our balance sheets are good. Our kids are good. Our job is good. We're secure. We're secure. And I'm starting to trust myself. And God goes, you know what? You're not trusting me. And, and listen, sometimes when things are taken away from us, it's God's gracious hand in our life. Sometimes we pray and go, God, give us, give us, give us. And sometimes God says this, I'm not going to give you things that are going to take your view away from me. I'm not going to give you things that you're going to now look at those things and trust those instead of trusting me, so I'm not going to give them to you. And in fact, the best thing I'm going to do for you is take them away. This is God's grace in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Well, let's conclude. Here's a conclusion. Nebuchadnezzar was restored. You'll notice he comes back to the first person in verse 34. At the end of the days, those days were seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. He was was insane, he was crazy, but then reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say to him, who or what have you done? Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. 
My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Two things here. Notice, notice that uh, as, as Nebuchadnezzar reached the end of what God was, was moving him through, that God was faithful to give him a new mind. We're going to see he got a new mind and a new heart. That is, that are, those are the makings of regeneration. That when we come to Christ, we're given a new mind, the mind of Christ. That now we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we actually have new lenses put on our sight so we can see things differently than we saw them before. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. We know that he was brought low to a point where he could finally see God in his fullness and in his new mind. And notice what he said here. He said, God is great. And you'll notice that uh, in those verses, it still seems like he's pointing to himself, but the order is correct. He's not pointing to himself. He's saying the kingdom is great, and God has given me this kingdom, and yet he is the one who is great. That is the new mind we have in, in Christ, that we start to have a Godward look at all of life. That everything we see is submissive to his sovereignty and his goodness. We start to see even the, the trials, even the hard things of life, as reason to give him glory. And last, we see a new heart is restored. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, look at this. I mean, this is the most prideful man in all the world at that time. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all the works are right, all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What a testimony of a man who went from pride to praise. Folks, I don't know about you, but I struggle with pride daily. I wish I didn't. I wish, I wish pride was one of those things that I could repent of, and like tomorrow I go, I'm not prideful anymore. That'd be nice. But pride is a, something we're going to struggle through, but it's, it's something we need to repent of. And so... And so the greatness that we have in Christ Jesus is we can confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are there areas of your life that you can identify as a source of pride? There's pride in your life that you need to turn from. Humble ourselves. There's two guarantees in life. We either get to humble ourselves or God will humble us. So I want to humble myself before he has to do it. And the time is now. Nebuchadnezzar waited 12 months, and God says, that's long enough. You should have done it today. And I'll just remind you again, we don't give up on anybody. If God, listen, if God can save, and I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar someday in glory. If God can save Nebuchadnezzar, he can save anyone. He can save your spouse. He can save your kids, your neighbors, your boss, even government officials. We want to find joy in being satisfied in God alone. I'll leave you with this. When all is said and done by John Piper, when all is said and done, that is the rock-bottom biblical answer to the question how to best fight pride. Be stunned and satisfied that we know God and that he knows us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the delight it is to be here. Thanks for your church. Thanks that you love your bride so much that you're willing to send your son to be crushed 
by you that it brought you pleasure to crush your son so that you could draw us back to yourself, that we could have his righteousness, that he substituted himself for us on the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would crush our pride. And in crushing our pride, you would fill us with belief so that we see and are satisfied in you alone, that we would humble ourselves, stop, we would stop trusting ourselves, and we trust in you alone. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.